our perception of information can boggle our brains a little bit. How we perceive things can lead us to interesting conclusions. And hence why illusions are so fun. That's why magicians or illusionists have their work because they are able to have you perceive things a certain way and then show something miraculous. There's a certain illusion that was developed in 1946 by Aldebert Ames. He created this thing called the Ames Room, which looks like this. In this picture, the person on the left looks like a literal Goliath, and the person on the right looks like little David instead of throwing stones. Is Here's some balloons, Goliath. I hope you have a good day. But in reality, we know that this group of people are probably similar in size, but you don't know these people. I don't know who they are, but what about people that you don't? You know me. Some of you might know my wife, and so I'm larger than my wife. I'm taller than her. I'm bigger than her, but I'm not this big compared to her. This perception makes me look like Shrek the Ogre, and she is my little Fiona. And hence movies, since why movies use this perception to trick you into thinking that I am much larger than my wife. But the same perception can trick us the other way around, that, that my wife Fiona turns into an ogre herself, and I am the little one, the little human being, like Prince Charming. <laughs> but, but the perception of things can lead us to wrong conclusions. Wrong conclusions like In-N-Out isn't really that good. That is a false conclusion. In-N-Out is the greatest burger in the world. I'm sorry for those who are out of state. You're wrong. That We host the greatest burger ever. Or you might lead to the wrong conclusion that Cane's is better than Chick-fil-A. I do not understand. Chick-fil-A is better than Cane's. Cane's is fine, but Chick-fil-A is holy. <laughs> but our perception of things can lead us to a wrong conclusion that God seems far away. Because if we do not turn to God, we will always perceive him far away. And as a result, we will have no hope. We will have no hope to get to any situation. Silly situations of, oh man, I didn't make the sports team. Oh, I didn't do as good, good of great on that class. You know, my boyfriend and girlfriend, we, we broke up. The serious notes of a loss of a family member, a friend taking their life. Without turning to God, we will perceive him far away and we will have no hope. David felt that way. David felt God was far away in his life. However, he does things to remind him that he is not, that God is not far away. So please turn, to, uh, turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. So in this psalm, some of these words may seem familiar to you, I hope, because they were ultimately fulfilled down the road. But as, you, as we prepare to read this psalm, I want you to know this, that you need to change your perspective. Realize that God is not far away. Look to what he has already done and turn to him for your salvation. If you're a non-Christian, salvation from your sins, the ultimate salvation, but for you Christians in the room, you can turn to him for the salvation in the situation you might be in, whatever it is. So please follow along as I read Psalm 22, which starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, ye, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at, your, at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. David right away lets us know how he feels. He feels abandoned and forsaken. Maybe like some of you are on Instagram and you're going through your story and your feed and you see some of your friends go to Disneyland without you and go to Star Wars Land without you, experience Galaxy's Edge without you, and you're like, what gives? Where's the invite? You feel forsaken. But maybe some of you in this room do truly feel forsaken, maybe even by God himself. David crying out day and night, feeling that he is not answering my prayers. Maybe you are crying every day and every night. Maybe some of you are crying a day or maybe a night. Maybe some of you are not crying at all because you just feel far away. He seems far away. But David, what does he do? He remembers what his ancestors did. His ancestors cried out to God. He remembered the things that God has done to his ancestors. And like we can look back in the Bible and see what God has done, not only for our ancestors, but for us. But that confidence loses traction like many of our confidence does. And David goes back and says, but I feel like a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned. I'm mocked. Like some of us in here are mocked for our faith. You believe in creation? You don't believe in evolution? You believe in a God who condones genocide? Why would you believe in such a thing? David right there is being mocked in verse 9, sorry, verse 8, about trusting in God. But David doesn't lament for too long. He remembers something else. In verse 9 and 10, he remembers the training he had since a child. From the beginning, his parents, apparently Jesse was a good father. And since the beginning, he was trained to trust in God as his savior. So in the times that David, whatever this anguish is, we don't know what it is. But in this time, he does two things. He remembers what God did in the past for his ancestors and for himself. And David had renewed confidence in looking to God's past blessings. So point number one, Sir North, you need to be thankful for the undeserved blessings. Be thankful for the undeserved blessings. My family, we, would do, we used to do a lot of long road trips as a family. And for example, my parents thought it would be a good idea. And it was fun. And at the time it wasn't because I was too small to remember. But we had this white van that we drove all over. We actually drove to every state in the United States west of the Mississippi, minus Oklahoma and Texas. But twice a year, we'd always drive up to Bishop, California, because my aunt and uncle lived there. If you don't know where that is, it's 320 miles north of where we are currently. 
and it's an hour south of Mammoth for those who like to snowboard and ski. And on that drive, as a child, as a growing child, I would always get hungry because I'm a growing little boy. I need, I need substance. I need food. And as I grow in my hunger, I grow in my groaning and complaining and whining. As my headaches would get worse, I would be, Mom and Father, why have you forsaken me? Why can't we just stop by Burger King? It's right there. Why can't we just go to In-N-Out? I can practically smell. I can see it with my own eyes. It's right there. I felt abandoned by my parents in the moment. But I thought like a child. If I was mature, I would remember that they fed me all the time. More than three meals. My dad would make his breakfast every morning. My mom would pack, me, pack his lunch every morning. And they would make his dinner every night. And on top of that, they would always have snacks around the house. And here I am doubting their love for me. As David was starting to doubt, he turned to stuff he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve his ancestors' prayers being answered. He wasn't there. He doesn't deserve the prayers answered by God at all. And he doesn't deserve the training that he got since a child. And so there is a few, we'll have four, we're going to have four subpoints right here. And we're going to talk about four things that you don't deserve that David also had. So if you want to put it as subpoint A, David had and you had the blessing that you don't deserve of common grace. And what is common grace? You might heard this term thrown a lot out out here. So let's do a little exercise. Everyone breathe in and breathe out. Congratulations, that's common grace. The air in your lungs, you do not deserve. You did not create the air. You did not create your lungs. And yet you take breath every day. You all are clothed, thankfully. Thank you for wearing clothes today or thank you for your parents who forced you to wear clothes today. But those clothes are something you don't deserve. Even if you purchase them, they're still given from God. All good things are given from God. And even God says that the sun rises on both the good and the evil. He lets it rain on the just and the unjust. He allows bad people to make money, but he allows you, so-called good person, to make money as well. All good things are from God, including the breath that we breathe, the food that we eat, the clothes on our back, the place that we live. We don't deserve it, but yet we're given it. Not only that, we also have a blessing. The second blessing you have is the blessing of revealed knowledge. You have a conscience. You know good from evil. You have wrong from right. You have your own book, your own law code that you have to say this is wrong and this is right. Stealing my in and out is wrong. Maybe blessing you with my in and out is right. However, our standard isn't good enough. Our conscience was given from God because we are created in his image. That's what it means. We're created in his image, knowing good from evil. However, we twisted it enough to create our own books of good and evil, and we choose what we think is good and evil. So God gave us another blessing, a blessing of our conscience and also the blessing of his word. He said, here's my perfect standard that you all fall short of. He didn't, he didn't need to give us this. We don't deserve his word written down for us, but yet he gives it to us to help guide us, not only what his perfect standard is, but the salvation that we desperately need. And since David had a blessing of training from his youth, we have, you right now have a blessing of the church, specifically this church, Compass Bible Church. Right now, you are being trained from me, the words that are coming out of my mouth. 
You're being trained by Pastor Rod. You've been trained by John Fabares. You will be trained by Pastor PJ when you move on from True North. And you sit in main service, you'll be trained by Pastor Mike. You don't deserve these people or these pastors. But also you get this, and on top of those pastors, you get small group leaders. Trained small group leaders who love you. Again, you don't deserve this. And on top of that, some of you might actually have godly parents who are trying to guide you, and yet we whine and complain when they force us to read God's word that we don't deserve together. We have to be thankful for the undeserved things that we have. And the third one that we have is a blessing of mercy from God, from what we actually deserve. We think if Cameron Richard thinks he works at In-N-Out, if I work hard at In-N-Out, if I make these burgers well, I deserve a paycheck. I shall reap. I shall sow what I reap. The problem is that everyone in this room, we sow destruction, and so we should reap the same. We sow evil, so we deserve punishment. Because don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. What we sow is corruption. This is a sobering Sunday sermon. Therefore, we reap punishment. We deserve it. We fall short of the glory of God. The payment of sin is death. And Paul makes a case for that in Romans chapter one. So please follow along to Romans chapter one, where Paul is going to make a case against us all in this room right now. Because he's making the case right now that the wrath of God is deserved for the unrighteous, that he already, he's going to make a case that all of us are unrighteous. So Romans one, starting in verse 28, please follow along. We're going to go through verse two, five. Romans 1.28, and since they, you and I, when we sinned, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, full of sin, full of evil, covetousness, coveting other people's stuff, malice and anger. They're full of envy, jealous of other what people have. They murder, they have anger in their hearts towards one another, strife, they divide, they deceit, they lie. They're malicious. They gossip about one another. They slander one another behind each other's back. They're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All of us have sinned at one point. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We've all committed murder with our own hearts. But though they know, verse 32, God's righteous decree, even though we know, even the unbelievers in this room, you know, you have your own book that you break always. You don't even stand up to your own standard and therefore don't stand to God's perfect standard. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, when you cheat on a test, you deserve an F. When you lust, you don't deserve a happy marriage. When you commit murder in your heart, when you do commit murder, you deserve the death penalty. You know this, but you don't only just do them, you give approval to those who practice them. You follow the leader. You find groups of people to say, man, did you cheat, cheat on the test? I cheated on that test. Like, man, you see so-and-so? They have the weirdest outfit on. They look dumb. And you gather together to tear each other apart and you try to approve of those actions. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, O true north. 
every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We know when a criminal commits a crime, they deserve to go to jail. However, we are the criminal as well. Do you suppose, O man, or true north, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience towards us, not wanting any one of us to be destroyed, but he wants us to repent and live. The reason why you are alive today in this room, the reason why Christ has not come back is because he wants you saved. He wants you to live. He doesn't want to put out his just wrath on you. He wants you to turn and live. But unfortunately, because of your heart and impotent heart, you're currently storing up wrath for yourself on the day, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See the mercy that God is granting to you that you are still alive in this room listening to another warning again and again. See the mercy how near God is because ultimately this is the fourth blessing that you have. The greatest blessing of Jesus. This is why we're excited about Christianity. This is why we sing songs of joy because while we deserve the punishment of our sins, Christ did it for us. God did it for us. Please just listen. Just don't turn there. Listen. What God has to say in Matthew 27, and then this is repeated, by the way, in Mark and again in Luke, God trying to make a point that Psalm 22 was fully fulfilled through Christ Jesus on the cross. That's why it should sound so familiar. This is Matthew 27, verse 39 and 46. Matthew 27, 39 through 46. And those who passed by derided him as Christ was carrying on the cross, who's actually on the cross right now, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, the leadership of Judaism, mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, him del- let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him be rescued by him. Christ fulfilled that on your behalf. So what does Christ do? Christ cries out at around the ninth hour in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken by the Father. Why? For you and I. You and I deserve to be forsaken. You and I deserve hell's punishment. But Christ, this is the beauty of Christ. He loved us so much that while we were enemies, he died for us. While we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he reconciled all of you in this room 
by his flesh. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves you to say, yes, you deserve to die, but I died for you. So why not repent? You don't repent and turn away from your sin to get out of hell. You repent and turn to a loving God who died for your sins. You respond that way. So see that blessing, the blessing that you were redeemed and brought back to God because he died on your behalf, but not for your glory, but for his. He wants to show off his mercy on you. And he did so on the cross and he's asking you to do that today. But so counting the blessings that you don't deserve helps us see that God is truly near. But what happens next is a response. You need to respond to a a reality, even if you are Christian or non-Christian in this room, a reality that exists between you and God. So follow along again in Psalm 22 to see what David says next. Psalm 22, verse 11. After David draws confidence, he says this, God, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. David, in this moment, whatever it is, feels surrounded. He feels his enemy is strong. Maybe some of you in this room feel that way. You feel surrounded by the temptation of sin. You feel surrounded by other peers at your school or maybe your parents or the authorities over your teachers or coaches, whoever it is. You might feel surrounded, attacked. David is exhausted. Maybe some of you are. You're tired of fighting the same thing over and over, giving in to the things that you know are wrong. But David... He continues. For him, it gets worse. He feels that he's being ripped apart. His hands and feet are being pierced. His back being ripped open. And he feels like his enemy has taken everything away. He feels naked and bare because they they took his clothes away. He feels defeated. But David knows that he can cry out to God because he knows that God is near. And so what he does, he actually cries out. David cries out in confidence for God for salvation. So True North, point number two, cry out to God for salvation. Cry out to God for salvation. I just think, when I think about this, I think of my cousin and I, when we were little, we would go to this community pool that my grandma used to take us when we were like four, five, six, I think until we were eight years old. 
And growing up in South Orange County, I grew up around pools and the ocean. And so I was a decent swimmer. I wasn't afraid of a 12 foot deep pool. I wasn't afraid of a diving board or the high dive, like 12 feet. Oh, that's no big deal. But to my cousin who didn't grow up in Southern California, he didn't know really how to swim. So 12 feet felt like the deepest ocean. I was like, I can't see the bottom. I'm like, dude, it's right there. So when I convinced him, and I'm sorry for that, I convinced him to come to the deep end with me, thinking, you'll be fine. It's not that hard to swim. It was for him. And he's treading and treading and treading, getting exhausted, trying his hardest to swim, to keep his head above the water. But he felt defeated. And so he decided to cry out. But it wasn't a cry out and a whimper. He cried out in confidence because he knew someone would be there to save him. He knew that there's a person who's being paid to sit on a high chair to come and save his life. So the lifeguard heard his cry, jumped down from their chair and got him out of the pool. He felt saved. David right now is in this passage is fighting for his life. He feels surrounded. He's like, the enemies are too strong. They're bulls. That's like, hey, I feel like I'm surrounded by tanks. I can't defeat these things. I can't win. I'm still trying to fight and I'm exhausted. My mouth is parched. I don't know about you. I've been tired enough to where I've had this thing called cotton mouth to where there is no more saliva in your mouth and you can't even spit, but you're so tired and you keep going and you don't know how you're going. That's how David feels. He feels ripped apart, pierced by his enemy, maybe his enemy's sin but ultimately he knows he can cry out in confidence for his salvation. So understanding what God has done for us and what he could do shows us how really close he is. So everyone in this room, you need to know that you are being attacked. Some of you already know that, but I need to convince some of you. Some of you who don't believe in God say, I'm totally fine right now. Nothing's wrong. I'm getting what I want. I can go to any party I want. I have all the grades I want. I don't even need grades. I already have a job. I don't need school. School's for fools. Look at me. I'm fine. I'm getting all that I want. How am I being attacked? Satan is attacking you because the way he does it is he wants your mind away from God. This is for some of you, he puts you through tragedies. He wants you to dwell in that depression. He wants you to dwell in that sorrow. He wants you to dwell in that anxiety that there is no hope out of the situation. My friend is gone. They took their life. There is no hope. There is no hope. I don't know what career I want, but people keep asking me. There is no hope. But he also, Satan wants your enemy. He's planning against you to say, I'll give you all that you want. I'll grant you success. Just bow before me and all this kingdom is yours. And you think you're successful on your own and you don't think of God. And that is his trap. Those who don't think they're in a fight will realize soon enough they're in a snare. Just like an animal that has no idea that they're about to be caught in a snare, so are you. Your enemy, Satan, wants you to be an enemy of God. You have to see you're winning an unwinnable fight. You're not going to win against your own sin. It's like asking a wolf to put a wolf in a room. Say, here's a plate of vegetables, here's a plate of meat. You choose. Just like that wolf will always choose meat, you will always choose your sin. You might be delayed. You might resist for a little bit, but you'll always give in, just like me and those donuts on Sunday morning after church. I, I can choose not to, but I always give in. And you're not strong enough to fight against God. If you think you're strong enough, oh, God isn't real, or I can stand up against God, 
please turn with me to Revelation 19. For those who do not believe in God, in Christ, your future is not pretty. Revelation 19, starting in verse 17, this is the future of God's enemy. And Satan wants you God's enemy. God doesn't want you to be his enemy. Satan, and and a part you, want to be God's enemy. What will happen to God's enemy in the end? Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, said, Come, gather for a great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and all the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to to make war against him, Christ, who is sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured, and, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him, Christ, who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged, full, fattened with their flesh. And jump down to verse 20. Sorry, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from from his presence, earth and sky fell away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, your and my life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they have done, according to what you and I have done. And the sea gave up the dead that who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The enemies of God, that is your future. You will lose. Don't think yourself mighty and strong. You will lose. So what do you need to do? You need to cry out for help. Recognize your sin. Recognize that you are enemy of God. Because why? His God wants to save you. He wants to help you. He went to the cross for you. He was surrounded by his enemies for you. We were his enemies. We were surrounding him. When we sinned, we put him on the cross. His strength was dried up for you and I. Our strength should be dried up, but he did it for us. He was pierced, ripped apart, and had everything taken away, including his garments, that the Roman soldiers casted lots to keep. He did this for you. He wants not to destroy you like Revelation 19 and 20. He did it for you. So please turn and repent. And Christians in this room, you may already know this. For those who don't know, you are being attacked. You're being surrounded by temptation. Temptation to give in. Temptation to be woke. To be on the right side of history. 
to do what the culture says, to give in to whatever your heart desires, to listen to your heart and your mind and say, do this, it's not that bad. Satan wants to say, you're saved by God alone, but Satan wants to drag you away to give you as many scars as possible. He wants to hinder your life with God. But the hope that you can have is that you're not alone. God is near. Look to his past. Read this Bible. Study this book. See his hand in your life daily. See the things that he's given you. Write them down and see that you are not alone and cry out to him for salvation. And the salvation of a Christian looks a little different than for the non-Christian. Because when you were a non-Christian and you were saved, you were saved from your sins, but we still have to live this life until God comes back. So let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. This is what the salvation of a Christian life will look like. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We cry to God for salvation. We understand that he alone has the power to save. We cannot save ourselves. David recognizes that. You need to recognize that. Paul recognizes that here. Because we, as Christians, are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. We wonder why certain things happen to us, why we lose people, why we get sick, why we go through trials, but we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, we're mocked for our faith, we're made fun of. Some of us in this world are being physically persecuted, but not forsaken by God. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that, so that the life of Jesus also, be, also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God will give you the strength to endure the trial if you cry out for salvation. He'll give you the strength to endure until you're finally called home. It might be a season it might be the rest of your life, but God will give you the strength. He will save you from that trial by giving you the strength to endure it. So after knowing that God is close and that you can cry out to him, it's time for us to learn that we need to trust in him. So as we finish up Psalm 22, go back to Psalm 22 with me and go to verse 21. Because David just had a prayer of God, asking God to cry out for salvation but then something happens in the middle of verse 21. We don't know the context. It's difficult because in the middle of, a, middle of a verse, David has a prayer answered. Again, we don't know the context. We don't know what happens. But in the second part of verse 21, it says, you have rescued me. You've rescued me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. 
My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted, they shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship him before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity, that just means the generations, shall serve him. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. David sees his prayers being answered. David, as a result, decides to praise God. Not just praise God in his quiet time, but to praise God and all of Israel and all the congregation in front of people. And not only that, he pleads and tells others, commands others to praise God with them because it is right. Because David recognizes a why. He recognizes that God sees the afflicted. God sees your afflictions. He sees your suffering. He sees what you're going through. He sees it because he is near. And David recognizes that. But then David recognizes the ultimate future. David recognizes that justice will come. That's verse 26. The, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. God, David sees that God will bring perfect justice. So true north is you need to realize that God will bring perfect justice to the wrongs that are, that are committed to you, but also for the wrongs that you have committed as well. And so David, though, he reminds himself and he paints a picture of what God's rule, rule will be on this world, what it will look like when, Christ's, when Christ reigns on this earth. And that's what you need to realize as well. David knows God can be trusted because he answered his prayer. And because he answers his prayer, he trusts God. So point number three, true north, trust in what the ultimate future looks like. Trust in what the ultimate future looks like. 11 years ago now, the summer of 2008, I was entering into my senior year of high school. And I went to go see a movie with my friends. We had no idea what was about to happen. I never heard of this person, but we went to go see this movie called Iron Man. As we sat in the theater, we enjoyed ourselves. Like, wow, this is a fun movie. We didn't think it was the best because The Dark Knight came out that year and that's a far superior movie. Don't argue with me. However, Iron Man is still super fun. So we saw the movie, the credits started to go, so we got up and left. It wasn't until I got the DVD that my friends were like, oh, did you know there's an extra scene at the end after the credits? I'm like, are you kidding me? There's something after? That is so cool. So I went, I got home, I played in the DVD, I watched the whole movie again, I skipped through the credits that nobody really watches, you just talk to your friends as they're going by. And I saw this scene, and I had no idea what happened. I'm like, who is this? Why is Samuel Jackson here with an eye patch talking about, who are the Avengers? What's going on? I had no idea that for the next 10 years and 20 movies that Marvel and Disney were planning something bigger. Since the beginning, they had an ultimate future. And now as we sit and Spider-Man Homecoming is coming out, we know for a fact that there will be an end credit scene. And that end credit scene will always point to something bigger that's about to happen. 
David sees that his prayers were answered. He sees the reality of our life now, but he also receives the reality of the future. And David responds by telling others to praise God. As we trust Disney and Marvel Studios to produce movie after movie after movie that always point to something bigger, we need to see Jesus, that he fulfilled Psalm 22 perfectly because the Psalm 22 is, an, is pointing to an ultimate future of Christ on the cross and Christ on the cross is pointing to an ultimate future of him coming back and ruling on this earth. So see Jesus, see Jesus fulfilled in Psalm 22. We can take the lessons of Psalm 22 through David, but also see Jesus fulfill it perfectly for you and I. We can trust in the resurrection. Here's a little sidebar fun fact for you. All serious scholars, not the scholars on the blogs or the YouTube channel, a comment section, know that all serious academic scholars believe three things. Christians and non-Christians believe this. One, Jesus was a real person. Jesus died on a cross and his disciples believed that he was resurrected. Now the last point is within a Christian and non-Christian because we believe as Christians that he rose from the dead because why would people go around, try to tell everyone and die for it? To say, hey, this man Jesus is not only just a man, he's fully God and he died for you and I and the payment of sin is death and Jesus' death paid sin in full. Therefore, why he is able to resurrect? Because his payment was satisfactory for you and I. So we can look at the resurrection and therefore, because of the resurrection, we can trust of what Jesus says, what the future will look like with his reign. Because if you don't believe this, I'm sorry, but every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, even for you in this room who refuse to confess it, who refuses to bow the knee, you will one day confess it, like it or not, because you will see God face to face one day and you won't be able to help it, but to bow your knee in reverence and to confess that he is God. So for those who haven't, count the cost. Because to follow Christ is gonna cost you everything potentially your family. It's going to cost you your relationship, potentially with your friends. Ultimately, it's going to cost you the sin that you're committing. But once you count the cost, you will see that Christ is so much more worth it. You can have a peace that beyond understanding here and now. You get to have hope instead of running around wondering what's going to happen next. You don't have to fear the elections. You don't have to fear the wars coming because you can look to the future hope of what's going to come. So Christian, when God seems far away, pray. Pray to him. Remember that he is near. Pray, pray persistently. That's why we have the prayer gathering on Saturdays from three to four, shameless plug. Because we believe that God is near. And the only way that we can have a true revival here in True North in South Orange County is if we rely on prayer. But Christian, when God seems far away, anchor yourself to the resurrection. Study it, learn it, and rejoice for it. Because of the resurrection, our sins can be paid for. They are paid for, but they can be for you. And also you need to focus on the future kingdom because whatever trial you will go through, doesn't matter. You have no idea what's going to happen today or tomorrow. Whatever trial that comes to you, you can focus 
on what the ultimate future is going to look like. And because of that, when God seems far away, you need to tell others about him. You need to share it. You need to evangelize. You need to tell people the hope that is in you. Even though God seems far away from our perspective, in reality, he's not. So for those who haven't surrendered again, count the cost. Repent now, today. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. You're not guaranteed to live the 30. But if... You're able to live. Some of us at STMOC, we've got to serve all over South Orange County. We've got to serve some of the care homes for the elderly. So imagine if you're able to live another 60, 70, 80 years down the road. We met people who were in their 80s, people in their 90s. There was a lady who was 105. You may be able to live your life now. Enjoy high school. Enjoy college. Enjoy what you think is right. But you're not guaranteed when you're old enough to say, all right, I'll put off God for now. I'll repent when I'm old in a care home because many of those people, they can't control their minds. They can't remember what you said in conversations that you had just a minute ago. They ask for your name again. That's where you're from. You're not guaranteed anything. So why wait? Why hold on? What you're holding on to is worthless. Hold on to Christ, which is priceless, which is precious. So please just do it today. Repent now and see that God is near. So now that you know that we can perceive God, we can now realize the true reality of the world we live in because of the aims illusion. We perceive things incorrectly. If you can put the picture back up, there you go. We perceive this incorrectly. Those people are relatively the same in size, but we perceive them as wrong. But this illustration can only work with one thing, a small little peephole at a certain angle. This is the only way that this works. Right now, we live in this world. We can see God maybe dimly, if we're lucky. Face to face, we'll see the full reality of God. But right now, we live in this life dimly through a mirror, a vague, foggy mirror. We can't see but with the tools of this sermon that was just preached to you, you remember what God has done for you in your past, that you can see through his word what he's doing, that you can cry out for help, that he is near, you can see the true reality of the Ames illusion. That the reality is, you're wrong. Change your perspective. Realize that God is near. See what he has done and turn to him for your salvation because what you perceive God as is most likely wrong. Turn to this word and allow God to help you perceive the world correctly. So as I close in prayer, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing a part of a song. You don't have to stand, just stay seated. I want you to listen what the reality of this world truly looks like through these lyrics. So please let me pray for you and I'll invite the worship team to come back up.